Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're talking about five random facts and some science. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, episode number 44. I know you've been waiting so long for us to release an episode, and I know that you missed us last week, but we love you, and we're here now. We're here. You going to tell them why we didn't release an episode last week? I got a stupid vaccine. (laughs) Well, we both did, and we both decided to be good to our bodies, take a rest, and so we did not have anything recorded so we decided to skip a week and we're back now here we are hey listen sometimes you just need to take a break yeah which is a whole nother podcast we could talk about how important it is to rest your body but but today we're going to talk about some random shit right random fact number one i want to talk about types of protein and their benefits yes i'm excited about this one because this is a question we get a lot both on instagram and just in person with clients so So the protein we're going to go over today, I mean, basically all of them. I don't really know. Outside of what we have here, I think there's just beef protein, which isn't very popular. Yeah. We can dive into that, but we've got whey protein. We've got the Mm -hmm. different types of whey. So we have them broken down into different subcategories and we've got casein and then we've got collagen peptides. Yep. Now, and then we've got vegan protein. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say... You know, I have some people out there or I've had some clients or I've done some consults, I should say, where people don't know where whey or casein comes from. Right. So let me break this down. Milk has two different subtypes of protein in it. Mm -hmm. It's got whey protein and it's got casein. I'll give you an example. When you make something like cottage cheese, Mm -hmm. because I remember doing this in food science lab in my undergraduate studies. You make cottage cheese and essentially what that does is it separates the whey from the casein. So cottage cheese is predominantly casein protein. And then that whey liquid that sits on top that gets separated, that can be turned into a powder. Or when you make cheese, you're left over with whey protein and you can make that into a powder and use it in a supplement. So the way that it starts is you start off with milk protein. Then you break that down into whey protein. Then you have whey protein concentrate, then whey protein isolate, and then whey protein hydrolysate. We'll start with whey protein and then we'll go into casein, which is that second piece, which is Mm -hmm. highly concentrated in something like cottage cheese. Let's start with the benefits of consuming a whey protein supplement, because as everybody knows, if you've heard our episode on the top five performance enhancing supplements, mm-hmm. whey protein is on that list because it's easily digested and absorbed. It's great for people who have trouble hitting their protein goal. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying you need a protein powder. You just need to get adequate protein. And if you're struggling to get adequate protein, adding a protein supplement into your day is something that you can definitely do. But I am going to say, try to eat more whole foods than supplement protein. 
Right. Like the people that drink like five protein shakes a day, probably not the best idea. But if you are even just like us that are trainers and need a shake throughout the day to supplement getting a meal in, if we're standing on the fitness floor working with a client, or if you have any type of work schedule that you need to add a protein shake in or use it as a post-workout or something like that, this is what we're talking about. My current regimen is a protein powder in the morning. Mm-hmm. in a smoothie. I mix it with oats. But I'm, I'm, I think I've said this in like three episodes. I know. I'm the same. I put it in my oatmeal in the morning. So oats, the bananas, easiest. almond butter, mm-hmm. ice, almond milk, right? And, <laughs> and then I'm out the door. And I do a casein in the evening. And mm-hmm. I'll touch up on that. Okay. And I'll touch up on why I do that in the evening. Okay. So, so whey concentrate. So we've got the whey protein in general is very high in uh, branch chain amino acids. Now, branch chain amino acids are leucine, valine, and isoleucine. And those three amino acids are the quote unquote muscle builders. Those are what mm-hmm. are shown to promote muscle protein synthesis, specifically leucine. So whey protein is very high in leucine. And anything you eat, any animal products that are also very high in leucine right. are going to provide a favorable environment for muscle growth and muscle protein synthesis. So yep. keep that in mind. This is why whey protein has been pushed, right? It's so popular. But I do think that there's been some marketing around that to make you think that you have to have a protein shake immediately after your workout for it to be beneficial. And that is not true from what we know about muscle protein synthesis and how long it lasts after your workout. And -hmm. it's not true from the standpoint of, I mean, you can just eat a piece of chicken or have a couple of eggs or whatever. Right. Uh, It doesn't have to be a whey protein supplement post-workout. So I just want to touch up on that. So let's talk about the subgroups of whey protein. We've got whey protein concentrate, which in the powder or per, per scoop, however you want to look at it, it's 80% protein. It contains lactose. So for our lactose right. tolerant people, you might yep. have difficulty with digestion with this. It does contain cholesterol, which I do want to say, you shouldn't worry about the fact that it if you're worried about your cholesterol, you shouldn't worry about the fact that your protein has cholesterol. I think often that's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a little bit of a little bit more carbs and more fat than the other categories of uh, whey protein. Now, typically, the way that whey protein concentrate is manufactured is they use a ion exchange system which uses heat, so it's heat treated. Part of the issue potentially with using this method in whey protein concentrate is that you can denature some of the proteins, rendering them less bioavailable. So Mm -hmm. if we remember from biology and we remember receptors that are like a lock and key, right? So the receptor that takes in the protein or the amino acids, I'll say, sits on your cell and the key is the protein. But if you denature or change the shape of that protein, it's not going to fit into that receptor. So this is where other forms of protein and other methods of manufacturing protein may be more optimal. Not saying that whey protein concentrate is garbage and you shouldn't do it, but just keep in mind that not all of that protein is going to be uh, bioavailable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Or available to your body. Yep. Now, with a lot of powders, what you'll typically find is you can find just whey protein concentrate, but what I find is often you'll find a whey protein concentrate combined with an isolate. Mm-hmm. And then that goes into the next one, which is whey protein isolate. Now, isolate, instead of using a ion exchange system or a heat treating system, it uses microfiltration, which is basically think of like a piece of tracing paper, 
right? And you're filtering it through or like a coffee, a coffee filter, like yeah. a coffee filter, right? And you're filtering the protein through. Mm-hmm. It's not there's no heat used. You're basically just filtering particles that is removing you're, you're getting more protein. So you're getting about 90%. Whereas keep in mind, whey protein concentrate, you're getting 80% protein. And then you end up with lactose, cholesterol, carbs, fat, right? Like all of these other components in there. You get about 90% protein in your whey protein isolate with a microfiltration. It's filtering out protein particles. Mm-hmm. For people who are lactose intolerant, this yeah, they- might be more tolerable. Mm-hmm. It's hit or miss. I would say try it. If you're still experiencing some symptoms, then yeah, remove you it. know, maybe you have to go the vegan route. The vegan protein route is something that I say, it's kind of like a last resort for me. Yeah, and we'll get into why. And then you have whey protein hydrolysate, which was a uh, later development in the protein market. It's been around for a while still, and it's manufactured usually using acid or enzymes to break apart the bonds between amino acids uh, for increased absorption and bi- bioavailability. So essentially, instead of having whole proteins, you're having peptides. So a little background on how your body breaks down protein is proteins get broken down and digested into peptides, which are just shorter chains. And then those peptides get broken apart into individual amino acids. So essentially you're breaking down some of the protein to make it easily digestible, easily absorbable. uh, And you have a higher bioavailability by doing this. So that's like the king of whey proteins for each form of whey protein. If you go concentrate, then isolate, then hydrolysate, you're going to go up on price point because it's more expensive to manufacture, obviously. Then we get into casein and here's why I have it in the evening. It's a great (laughs) PM protein. It's very slow digesting. If you try and make a protein shake out of it, you'll find that it's very thick. It's thick like I like my women, which is why I choose to make a pudding out of it. So I'll add a little bit of water to it and I'll make a pudding and then I'll add almond butter and I'll mix that in. I freeze that. You freeze yours. I put mine in the freezer for like 15 minutes. So good. I've never I've never frozen. Oh, my God. You haven't. I've made popsicles out of it, too. You do a chocolate Mm -hmm. like a fudgesicle bar. Yeah. So freaking good. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. I I have to try it. I, don't I mean, I like, like it. it just because, well, that's because that's what I like at night. Like if I had a choice of a treat or whatever. Now, why in the evening? Because it digests very slowly. Slowly. You have this gap when you're sleeping of about six, seven, eight hours, whatever it is, you're not feeding yourself. So a good option is to have casein mm-hmm. uh, before you Now, It's not again, it's not a requirement, but I like to do it. I like to recommend it. I think it's a great product. Uh, I also think in in terms of just switching it up, the fact that you could do like a pudding like substance, right? right? And it can be good and sweet and delicious, right? You can do all kinds of things. You can make those fudge pops Mm -hmm. and uh, it just gives you another option for something to have. I wouldn't do like a whey protein before I went to bed because I would think I'd probably get hungry. Then we get into collagen peptides. And Nicole, you and I have recently had a conversation around collagen peptides. And should you count your collagen peptides as Yeah, I get protein? asked this literally. I, I can't even tell you how many times. Does it count? I mean, obviously everything counts, but. It counts for calories, right? Well, this is my whole point when, when, because women ask me this, I will say, I feel like collagen peptides is a female product because you talk hair skin or, nails uh, don't leave health. us out don't leave us out i'm I mean, not i'm not leaving you out i'm just saying i i don't think i have any of my guys that are like hey collagen peptide for my hair <laughs> it's always the women and the nails or skin. And skin 
Yeah. But all I'm saying is that females ask me, does it count? And a lot of the times I feel like they ask me if it counts towards protein because they struggle to get their protein intake one and two, they're also want to know if it counts towards their calories, which is obviously everything counts. That's always my response. Right. So just like we talked about with whey protein, where it's high in branched chain amino acids, remember we said uh, leucine, valine, and isoleucine. Mm-hmm. Collagen peptides are high in, so those are muscle builders, right? Those are things that are the leucine, valine, and isoleucine are things that your muscles are made up of, right? And then you're building muscle using those amino acids. So mm-hmm. collagen peptides work in a similar way on your skin, where right. it's high in glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline, which mm-hmm. is a high concentration of that in your skin. So that's really good for skin and it's good for skin elasticity due to it having a low molecular weight. Hydrolyzed collagen is highly digestible and there are studies to support that it improves wrinkle depth and skin elasticity. Uh, I would say so that's where you get the women. That's where you get the women. And (laughs) also specifically for women, I have seen some research that points to women lose their skin elasticity quicker than men do. Yep. Probably due to hormonal differences in men yep. versus women. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nicole, like you say all the time where it's, you know, if anybody says men and women, it's the same thing. Like it's, it's not. not There are vast differences between male and female, largely due to hormonal differences. Mm-hmm. So uh, skin elasticity tends to taper off and start to drop off earlier in women. So yes, I will agree that this is a product that women might have to maybe start using earlier in life than men would and just making sure you're getting those types of amino acids. There are some studies that show that enzymatically hydrolyzed collagen have some anti-inflammatory properties uh, and helps to is actually distributed to joint tissues. So it helps with uh, joint recovery. Uh, there's one specific study that the ingestion of collagen peptide affected the size of collagen fibrils and composition of glycosaminoglycans in the Achilles tendon that improved mechanical properties of the Achilles tendon. So again, we're talking after injury here. So a potential there for uh, if you are recovering, this is where I recommend collagen peptides for mm-hmm. hair, skin, and also if you're recovering from an injury. Mm-hmm. Or if you're recovering from some type of surgery, it's yeah. going to help with that skin repair. Uh, and it's going to help with the uh, like if you have like some kind of orthopedic surgery. Yeah. Like uh, a joint or a, a knee surgery or a, I don't know what else can I think of a shoulder surgery. Yeah, right. That's going to that's going to help to repair because it is shown to help with uh, joint tissue as well. So, yes, it counts, <laughs> but clearly di- towards different aspects of um, how it functions in the body. You're not going to consume like collagen muscle pe- protein. Is yeah. it? Yeah. You're, you're not going to consume collagen peptides and I- expect an increase in muscle protein synthesis and expect right. it to help you to build muscle. You need to consume things that are, that's what your muscles made of. Right? right. This is where like you talk about, you are what you eat. Yeah. Right. Because as you are right, you're made up of the things that you eat. If you eat branched chain amino acids and there's a high composition of branched chain amino acids in your muscle tissue, that's what's going to help you build muscle. If you, mm-hmm. I say this all the time, if you eat muscle, it's going to help you to build muscle. Right. So all you vegans out there. Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. Let's go into, speaking of vegan. <laughs> speaking of vegan. Let's get into vegan protein. Now. Because ve- there's a lot of great looking vegans with a lot of muscle. Yeah, sure. 
Now, vegan protein, what I will say is it's not as optimal as doing a whey protein for building muscle because of, of the supplement. amino. Yeah, because of the yeah. amino acid composition. Right. So it is going to be harder to uh, draw a pool of amino acids for vegans than it is for non-vegans or vegetarians. But whatever your preference is, I'm not here to dictate what you should do. I'm here to just help you optimize it. So if right. you're if you're getting vegan protein because you're either a vegan or vegetarian and you have that preference, or if you're getting a vegan protein because you can't do uh, whey protein concentrate or isolate or hydrolysate because of the lactose issue, then this part's for you. Rice and pea is always preferred, not hemp protein and not just pea protein or not just rice protein. There are a lot right. of brands that'll do the combination. that. Combination. I have a preference towards rice and pea protein combined because that gives mm -hmm. you a complete amino acid profile and that's going right. to be more favorable. So if you right. find a product out there that has that combines rice and pea protein, or if some companies will do like a bunch of different seed proteins mm -hmm. uh, combined with rice protein, right? Like that's okay too. It's going to be typically more so the plus side to this is it's going to be typically higher in antioxidants and phytonutrients because it's coming from plants. The one thing that I will say is you want to watch out for heavy metals from the soil and you want to choose products that are third-party tested. This is going to be important. You don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, overtax the liver. You don't want to overtax your system. And the reason why I say this is because a few years back, there were a few vegan protein powders that were third-party tested that didn't fit the FDA criteria for the threshold for heavy metals. So definitely want to do your research in yeah. terms of what brands are you choosing? I know Vega is a very popular brand, but mm -hmm. they were caught up in that list of companies, list of companies with, you know, uh, threat with issues, uh, you know, levels beyond the threshold of what's considered acceptable by the Food and Drug Administration. So, yeah, keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, do your research, make sure that if like what like with everything, the reason why I wanted to go through the different types of proteins is because we just get a ton of questions about it is just make sure you do your research, make sure that like Jerome said, most of what you're eating is from whole foods and you're using these truly as a supplement, a way to get in that extra bit of protein that you may need throughout the day, but that you're not utilizing this, these as your only source of protein throughout the day. I say it all the time. Primary sources of protein, meat, fish, poultry, dairy, and eggs. Choose from those. Subcategory for uh, dairy is uh, whey protein, casein, cottage cheese, yogurt, right? Mm -hmm. If you're okay with doing lactose, which yeah, I have to say I miss it. Mm -hmm. I don't do lactose. Yeah. For anybody who's heard me on the show before, um, I you know that I, I, I don't do it and I miss it because it's such a convenient source. Like I still do whey protein. That's really the only thing. It's such a convenient source of protein. Mm -hmm. Like doing yogurts would be awesome. Yeah. But it's interesting. I read an article why, like years back that as a bodybuilder, you either eat a ton of yogurt or you eat no yogurt. Like yeah. There's no in between. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but. I don't know if that's true either. I mean, I eat one yogurt a day like and i mix my collagen peptides in it actually <laughs> i love it it's so good but it's like a snack that's not really my main meals are regular protein sources but chicken fish whatever oh my god turkey chicken fish tuna on to the next one all right what's next number two we want to talk real facts about fiber 
we want to talk about types of fiber. Go ahead. I know there's been a lot of hype with the carnivore diet, and I know that there's been a lot of information coming out about how plants are bad for you. Where is that? That's in the car. The carnivore, like plants are bad for you. They contain. There's been a lot with. Yeah, they they contain they contain protective mechanisms that actually cause damage and wreak havoc to your body and cause autoimmune issues. Right. There's all types of shit with this carnivore stuff. Now, what I will say is any downside that you can say about eating produce and eating more plants. I guarantee you, I can slap you in the face with tons and tons <laughs> and good tons outweighs and years and years of research showing the positive benefits of consuming more fiber in the diet. So yeah. we're going to talk about two different types of fiber here. We're going to talk about soluble and we're going to talk about insoluble fiber. Mm-hmm. Now, soluble fibers, they absorb water. They create kind of like a gelatinous substance in your gut, and they help to kind of push things through. Soluble fibers are also the fibers that end up in your colon and they end up being fermented by the bacteria in your colon. So what happens is the fermentation process of the prebiotic fibers, like if you've heard the term prebiotic fibers, quote unquote, right? It's just basically fiber or certain types of fibers. You can get them from whole foods. You don't need to supplement prebiotic fibers. You can get them from beans. You can get them from certain types of fruits, like fruit pectin is a uh, soluble fiber, uh, lentils, oats, peas. Uh, you can supplement with psyllium husk potentially, and then any kind of type of like sunflower seeds or flax seeds. You, that's where you're going to get your f- soluble fiber. And those things are beneficial for the fermentation process where the good bacteria, and this is where we talk about good versus bad bacteria, Uh, Bad bacteria will feed off of sugars that you consume and the good bacteria will feed off of the fiber and they will create these short chain fatty acids, uh, which promote gut health by protecting against inflammation and enhancing the intestinal barrier. Beyond that, the cardiovascular benefits that we see from fiber is uh, often contributed to the soluble fibers. There are several meta-analyses that determine soluble fiber may reduce cardiovascular disease incidence uh, and mortality by lowering total blood cholesterol. Uh, Nicole, you and I talked about uh, beta-glucans, mm-hmm. which are in oats, which mm-hmm. are considered a soluble fiber, which help to uh, reduce cardiovascular risk and help to reduce cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about that when we talked about mushrooms. A lot of different mushrooms have uh, beta-glucans in them, which are really beneficial, not only for digestion, but also for cholesterol and blood lipid profile. Mm-hmm. Then we get into soluble fiber, uh, which helps to regulate digestion and has a little bit more of a laxative effect. So for those of you who aren't regular, and I I know over time, spoken to a countless number of clients that I've had to help them with digestive issues, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not pooping at least once a day, right? The recommendation is you should be pooping one to three times a day. Uh, If you're not, things like whole wheat, wheat bran, uh, and certain vegetables like beets, spinach, carrots, broccoli, those are the types of things that are going to help for things to pass through your digestion and to kind of bulk up your stool so it pushes through. And the other piece to insoluble fiber, there's a big uh, inflammation and cancer piece when it comes to insoluble fiber. So there is some research that indicates that insoluble fiber may help prevent diverticulitis, Mm -hmm. which is a disease where you have these little pockets, these air-filled pockets that develop in your colon and it's, it becomes inflamed and just wreaks havoc 
and you have certain dietary restrictions. You can't eat small seeds because like things like sesame seeds, mm. poppy seeds. If you like everything stuck. bagels, which I do say bye to your everything bagels, right? You want to <laughs> prevent the, these types of things. Uh, and I, I guess what it's thought is like when you're pooping and you're really pushing hard, that's what's creating these pockets. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just helps things to come out with ease. And the other piece that I will talk about when it comes to insoluble fiber is there's additional research that suggests a link between not just insoluble fiber, but high fiber diets in general and reduced risk of colon cancer, which mm -hmm. is very aggressive cancer. There's a ton of research. So this is what I mean when I say like when something like when something like eat? the carnivore <laughs> diet, when something like the carnivore diet comes out and talks about all of the potential dangers of eating plants i'm like you gotta it's be just you gotta, so silly like you, I mean, you gotta on. be kidding me with this the other piece is you know the foods that you're eating that are high in fiber they come packed with phytonutrients and antioxidants and what i will say is when people are trying to get their fiber intake up they generally yeah. think vegetables mm -hmm. but they should be thinking more grains Yes. And this was Speak. something that this was something that I learned later on in looking at my own food journal and mm -hmm. figuring out what foods were, were higher in fiber. And it ended up being my oatmeal, my brown yep. rice. Right. And this mm -hmm. is where I'm a proponent of eating whole grains and not refined grains because the refined stuff, you're removing the fiber and you're just getting the starch. Right. So you right. want to get the best of both worlds. Now, Nicole, recommendations for fiber for uh, individuals. 25 to 35 grams, 25 for females, 35 for males. I've also heard 15 grams per thousand calories, 14 grams, right? 14, 14, 14 grams. Yeah. For per, per thousand every calories. thousand calories. Now yeah. I prefer the strategy of 14 per every thousand calories because <laughs> you have to consider that you're eating food and the more food you're eating, right? Like let's say you're, yeah, let's say you're you a male and you're a big, heavy, muscular man right. and you have to eat 3000 4, calories, calories. 4, yeah. calories a day that 35 grams might not be enough so the 14 mm -hmm. grams per thousand calories that you're eating i think is a better measure yeah um because you have to you know more food is gonna have to be processed more fiber you're gonna yeah. want more fiber i think one thing that i would say about fiber i always link fiber and water together for a couple of different reasons one when we when we meet with clients and we first start talking about fiber intake and we do kind of just a, a, a basic journal and look at what they're eating per day, they, believe it or not, some people actually eat too much fiber and can back themselves up. And some people can eat too little fiber and back themselves up. It, it really is a delicate balance of figuring out what works best for your body. And to Daron's point, so many people focus on vegetables, 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 because everybody's so afraid of, of the other type of carbohydrates that you really want to create balance. This is something I learned very early on in my dance career as well ab about making sure that the balance is adequate enough so that not only am I going to the bathroom regularly, but I'm able to actually digest some of these foods or all of these types of foods for life. The less you eat of something, the harder it is for you to digest it over time. So you want to make sure you're eating a balance of both. You want to make sure that you're adequately getting that fiber per day. You also want to make sure you're adequately, adequately drinking enough water per day, because on top of eating fiber, if you're eating fiber and you're bulking your stool up and you can't pass it, then if you're dehydrated or not drinking enough water, 
that can also add to some of the strain and stress of trying to actually eliminate. So water and fiber are so important. They go hand in hand. Well, like we, like we talked about soluble fiber too, right? And it draws water into the right. intestines. You need right? to be so hydrated in order to, to... You need water. The other thing that I will say is if you're somebody that is consuming lower fiber now, take your time gradually right. increasing your fiber because exactly. you may have digestive discomfort in the process of increasing your fiber intake to that 25 or 35 grams or 14 grams per thousand calories. Yeah. And when you, you talked about fermentation, when food sits too long and it ferments, that can create a lot of, ha or wreak a lot of havoc in your digestive system. You can create gut dysbiosis by having too much bad bacteria, too much, and you can even have too much good bacteria, which we talked about, I believe with Ryan. As much as people think eating bad food creates issues in your gut, eating too much good or too much of one type of good food can also create the same amount of issues. So it's all about balance. It's all about creating a balance that works for your body. We see this in competitors all the time that eat the same foods every you know, day to compete because they limit and restrict their foods and then they can't digest foods later on when they try and implement things back in. It's just another way of wreaking havoc on your system. So you just want to make sure that we're creating balance. That's all. All right. Real fact number three. We're going to talk USDA terminology. This is really like a, this is really I, I do. I, I do have to say this is really probably the most random episode we've done. It but is, but it's fun stuff. USDA, we get asked this all the time. USDA terminology. What does it mean? All right. So. We're going to go through the breakdown. We're going to go. Where does it come from? First of all, when you say USDA terminology, who creates this the terminology? The United States Department of Agriculture. Which I just want you to say that out loud. <laughs> the United States Department of Agriculture. Now, that is also the same organization that met, like when I look at the uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, a lot of the stuff that they get is comes down from the USDA, mm -hmm. which you know, comes down from government lobbying and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I don't want to get into all the politics of that stuff. No, no, but, no. We just, but that is that same organization where like recommendations, nutritional recommendations for Americans, like will trickle down from the USDA into the mouths of yeah. you and I. Yeah. Now USDA terminology, right? Like you'll see USDA on a uh, like meat package. Yeah. Right? Choice beef, uh, prime meat, right? Like different, different types of meat, different categories, mm -hmm. different standards. We're going to go over organic, natural, free range, cage free, no, no hormones added, and no antibiotics and grass fed and wild caught. And Holy I think cow. that's it. So, okay. Organic, which is interesting story about organic that the initial thought for organic was that they were going to allow sewage sludge and all these different things in it. And then the people spoke and they were like, fuck that. And <laughs> the USDA was like, all right, we got to really make it organic. Right. So mm -hmm. organic uh, in regards to animals, this label regulated by the USDA informs that the animal was uncaged with outdoor access and they were fed 100% organic feed. They're antibiotic and hormone free. And for non-animal products labeled as 100% organic, they may not contain ingredients treated with chemicals, pesticides, or herbicides. So your fruits mm -hmm. and your vegetables, vegetables 
cannot be treated with chemicals, pesticides, or herbicides. And I will add sewage sludge cannot be in it and should <laughs> not be in it. Definitely now, not. If you guys ever looked at this is just an interesting fact. If you guys ever like, you know, the barcode on your fruit. Mm hmm. So there's a number on your fruit and we just generally think, oh, well, that's the number that the supermarket uses to identify the fruit, right? right. That's a universal number of the processing that that went through. So mm -hmm. for example, if you look at the first number on that fruit on that above that barcode, if it begins with a nine, it's an organic fruit. You don't really need to know that because nowadays you go into the supermarket and there's an organic section, right? Uh, if it begins with a three or a four, then it was conventionally raised. Now, conventionally could mean a number of things, right? It could mean pesticides. It could mean chemicals. It could mean herbicides. It could mean anything, right? You don't really know. But there are, I believe there's databases that you can look up like what each, I'm not going to go through and do it, but you can look well, up. Well, there is. Yeah, you can look up what each number on there means. Uh, and it tells you like, you know, from farm to table, like how or farm yeah. to supermarket, how that was produced and grown. I don't know how I feel about organic versus not, you know, there's GMO organic, not like I eat some stuff that's not organic and I don't really care. Sometimes price is a factor. Mm -hmm. There's not much evidence to support that organic is better. Some people will say, I don't want to put herbicides and pesticides in my body. Mm -hmm. I have seen like the, those documentaries. I forget which one it was where they were like, here was a family and they tested their blood and they showed levels of herbicides and pesticides and they showed certain chemicals in their blood. And then after they were just eating organic and then it disappeared and they were like, you see that? And I was like, well, what does that prove? It doesn't prove anything. I know right? it didn't go through the health of the person. And it just right. told you that it was what, there what or not. What documentary was that? I forget. Oh, my God. There's so many of them. That stuff. Listen, I'll be really honest. I the only thing I really pay attention to is my meat. Other than that, I don't. Well, really so I pay attention to meat from a standpoint of it just tastes better. It's quality. It's better quality. Right. Yeah. Like, and I'm more concerned about the animal's life and that it got to run around. And I, I know that's a whole nother topic, but I don't care about my fruits. Humanely, and vegetables. Ra humanely raised. Which yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's go on to the next one. Let's go on to natural. Natural. Natural sucks. Right. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> so the USDA has defined but not regulated. Um, this label means meat products are <laughs> minimally processed and contain no artificial ingredients, no added colors or chemicals. Now, here's where it becomes a little sticky is that when you're referring to non-meat products and you see the term natural on mm -hmm. a label, it's misleading because it doesn't mean anything. Well, even when you see things like Cheerios that are natural, that's it doesn't mean anything. What the what, heck does what, that like, mean? <laughs> okay, so because so because we haven't defined it natural, right? It can be GMO, right. it can be pesticides, it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be organic, right? If it's organic, obviously on the label, USDA organic has to be organic, but there's no defined term for anything outside of meat for it and you see the product natural all the time. Now, yeah, natural, doesn't mean, natural doesn't mean healthy. Natural doesn't mean great. The next one that I want to get into gluten free. Gluten free just means no that it doesn't, contain, it doesn't contain wheat, right? That's and pretty simple. <laughs> any, anything from wheat, right? And I will say that there is, uh, with the exception of other things, right? There's gluten free oats because oats do, do generally have trace amounts, trace amounts of wheat. Mm -hmm. So 
if you're somebody that has a high sensitivity to gluten or uh, gluten intolerance or gluten allergy, like celiac mm-hmm. or something like that, then yeah, that's definitely something that you're going to want to keep in mind. I, there's a misconception that gluten-free means healthy now. Well, listen, that's because gluten people, people utilize gluten-free products for the wrong reasons. One and two gluten-free cookies aren't healthy. They're still cookies, right? They're just made with what what else have I seen? Gluten-free pretzels, like that type of shit is, is not healthy, but for the person that's gluten-free, really gluten-free not because they think wheat is bad and it's a carbohydrate and they shouldn't eat it and they think they're going to lose weight faster if they go gluten-free that's not the reason why you do it but i think people have that misconception i'll just uh, gluten is it's so sensitive to it so i'll just take it out yeah and it's usually just uh replaced with rice flour right refined flour is refined flour in my eyes yeah it doesn't matter (laughs) nicole you sent me a picture at one point with a gluten-free water bottle did i i'm pretty sure you did I did. I'm just kidding. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I was that, like, that's, what? The hell yeah. Right. So glu- a gluten, gluten free has become like a kind of a health halo. Well, there's right? just it's though what I what I posted was I posted on my Instagram. It was a picture of like the, the Fiji water and it said gluten free, dairy free. It had like a list of things, all, some of these terms like organic, whatever. And I was like, it's water. Of course, it's fucking gluten-free you dumbass like shit like that gets me so fired up i was standing there in front of the water case because they had a little like white thing like on a little pedestal with all the stuff that it listed like it's gluten-free it's dairy-free it's this it's that i'm like it's water it's not the bottle it's they were saying that the water was gluten-free you know as a way to get you excited to buy it like come on the ice cubes in my freezer are great gluten-free they're they're, they're (laughs) gluten-free and they're and they're calorie-free with the yes, there you go. That that was another thing that was on there, low calorie or something. But it's just so stupid. Like we're, don't get me wrong. These labels I think are important. Gluten free is important if you authentically have an issue, which is my whole point. But I think they're getting a little out of control with people thinking, you know, food oh, has to be stripped down to like the bare bones in order for you to eat it. No, but I mean, listen, I took like gluten like wheat flour or white flour, like, like I said, it doesn't matter. It's flour is flour. Right. One's not going to be better than the other unless you have a gluten intolerance. Mm -hmm. Now let's go into free range and cage free, Mm -hmm. free range, not defined by the USDA and therefore can be freely used on labels. In theory, this means that the animals have access to outdoors, but since it's not regulated, the animals may never actually leave their enclosure. We don't know. So free range means nothing cage free. Although there's no legal definition, quote, that's defined, um, cage-free means that uh, the animal's uncaged. It's not in, living in a cage, uh, but the animals can still live. And yeah. this is chickens we're generally talking about. Uh, like they can still live quarters. in, yeah, and be like crammed together. So not really Just because it's not in a cage doesn't mean they're not close together. Not really much there mm-hmm. uh, of goodness. Uh, <laughs> no added hormones. Uh, this is kind of, when it comes to certain foods, it's like an empty claim uh, because USDA prohibits adding hormones to poultry or pork products. So you'll see that on the label highlighted when even if it's not on the label, it's not going to matter because you're not allowed to use them for that anyway. Right. Uh, where there you'll you'll find hormones where it's not regulated as hormone free beef is going to be another story. 
No antibiotics. As implied, it means the animals were not given any antibiotics. As we know that, you know, farm animals are the largest consumer of antibiotics. So more than people, more than humans. Unfortunately, the label's not third-party certified and it may be overused and it's kind of a little somewhat unreliable, but that's antibiotics. And then we get into grass-fed and wild-caught, which I enjoy very well. Uh, Grass-fed beef means that it was fed grass. Now, the issue is that some companies will do grass-fed and grain-finished, and you never know if it was finished with with grain. So what grass-fed and grain-finished means is that uh, it was fed grass for the majority of its life and towards the end of its life, it was fed grains versus having something that is potentially uh, grass-fed or pasture-raised, like 100% grass-fed or pasture-raised. That's what you would prefer to be looking for. Some labels that say grass-fed, they don't they don't tell you whether or not it's grain-finished. So that's where you'll, you'll want to do a little bit more research. Now, what I will say is I'm a huge advocate of doing, uh, if you're going to do beef, to do a grass-fed beef because it's got a healthier omega-3, omega-6 composition Mm -hmm. where you're getting more omega-3s. Again, back to like we talked about earlier, you are what you eat. So if an animal is going to eat grains that are very high in omega-6 fatty acids, that animal is also going to be very high in omega-6 fatty acids. Then you are going to eat that animal and you are going to be very high in omega-6 fatty acids. (laughs) So we want to get more omega-3 fatty acids and grass-fed cows or pasture-raised cows are higher in omega-3 fatty acids because of what they're eating. Then we get into wild-caught and Wild caught means that fish are caught in their natural habitat and they're not farmed and they're not, if you've ever seen like a a farm raised, farm raised (laughs) fish, right? It's just basically a net in the ocean and a bunch of fish in there. And the issue with this is, and I learned this later on, the fish, if you saw like salmon, I'll use as an example, if you saw a farm raised salmon, right? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, back to omega-3 composition. Same thing with these is they're starting to feed and they've been doing this for a while now. They're feeding fish more like of a grainy feed. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but when has a fish ever when jumped does out fish, of the ocean? Yeah. Right, jumped out of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And ate, grabbed ate, a ate, ate a corn bread. cob, yeah. right? A piece of bread <laughs> and then jump back in like it doesn't happen. Right. So <laughs> it's going to be lower in omega-3 fatty acids because what happens is with omega-3s in the ocean is that sea algae kind of starts the process. So sea algae, just like grass, sea algae is very high in omega-3 fatty acids. You've got this small fish that eats the sea algae. And now that small fish, right? Now that's <laughs> the same thing, right? That we just talked about, like with the cows and the people yeah. and eating it, right? So you want to go up the food chain and you want to have right. something that's higher in omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. You're not really getting that with, with your farm-raised with your farm fish. Raised fish. The other thing I'll say is, and this is the point that I was going to try to get to, is because the fatty acid composition is different, and the same goes for beef, like when you look at that piece of fish or that piece of meat, it's going to look different. Yeah. Right? Like the the grass-fed beef is more of like a yellowish tinge to the fat. Yep. And the fish, salmon, for example, the farm-raised salmon is gray. Yep. It's not pink like your typical salmon. So what they do is... They add a dye, dye. to it, right? Mm-hmm. They add a dye to it 
that and allows it, it to, look appear, to look the same, right? Yeah. So it's it's like false advertising. Now, <laughs> what I'll say, so this is an interesting point. So I knew somebody who had an allergy and I didn't find out, find this out about the diet till later on. Every time she ate a uh, farm raised fish, she'd break out in hives. And mm -hmm. I think it was from the dye. So incredible that our bodies tell us when things, I mean, if we just listen. Now, listen, my body doesn't break that break out in hives when I eat farm raised fish, but, and, and there and is everybody's some, different. Listen, farm raised versus wild caught. Like you're going to pay literally double the price, but you're going to get a better quality fish. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying earlier about organic versus non. When it comes to meat, fish, I'm very picky. Yeah, me too. Next thing we're going to get into. Number four, real facts about coffee. <laughs> and I cry through this one because I can't have coffee. I love this topic. I do, too. And just for the record, I love coffee, even though I don't drink it anymore. So I want to first go into the breakdown of how coffee works. Okay, go. So while you're awake, you wake up in the morning and <laughs> as the day goes by, let's say you didn't drink coffee or you did. Who cares? Anyway, you wake up and your body creates adenosine and adenosine is a molecule that we all know adenosine from adenosine tri diphosphate, adenosine triphosphate, ATP energy. Adenosine slowly accumulates in your brain throughout the day. And adenosine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that binds to what's known as the adenosine receptor. Well, would you look at that? Adenosine goes right into the adenosine receptor. It's like a key in a hole. That's it. Lock and key, right? Lock and so key. Now, now there are specific receptors that we look at that uh, caffeine kind of has a, a effect on, which specifically there's a, a, a A2 and A2A receptors. These are both different uh, subtypes of adenosine receptors. And now the adenosine receptors, when the adenosine goes into the adenosine receptor, that's what causes it, it blocks the action of the receptor and the nerve, the nerve transmission. And that's what causes you to get more and more sleepy throughout the day. So think about it like this. Adenosine goes into the adenosine receptor and you have this accumulation, more adenosine, more adenosine, more adenosine. And then throughout the day, as more adenosine accumulates in your brain, you become more sleepy. Now, while you're asleep, the concentration of adenosine declines, gradually promoting wakefulness. So this is the cool part. This is where caffeine comes in. Because, and I, it, I thoroughly enjoyed, I thoroughly enjoy reading about this. Caffeine is a molecule that greatly resembles the adenosine molecule. So caffeine has the ability to bind to the receptors, these uh, adenosine receptors, and block entry by adenosine. It's known as a competitive antagonist. So it competes for room in that receptor and usually wins, depending on how much coffee you drink, right? For this reason, I, I kind of say like... Uh, I, you want to think of caffeine as like a bouncer at the door. So caffeine goes into that receptor and the receptor is the doorway. And it's like, yo, adenosine, you're not allowed in right now. You're kicked out. That's it. You're done. We're staying awake. We're not falling asleep. Right <laughs> now, the cool thing about this, and this is where uh, you find that like withdrawals come in with caffeine is that mm -hmm. your brain wants adenosine. So over time, like people who drink coffee on a regular basis, their brain will create more receptors to try and take in more adenosine. Mm -hmm. So that's why now when you've got, oh, let's say when you stop drinking coffee, 
some of the withdrawals that you have may Mm -hmm. be because of the increased receptors, because now you have more adenosine going into more receptors and you're not taking in coffee anymore. Right. Now, obviously, those withdrawal symptoms will subside over time. Some of those uh, receptors might downregulate, but that's what's going on there. Now, Mm -hmm. caffeine also stimulates production of adrenaline, stimulating your central nervous system and increasing your heart rate, your blood pressure and aerobic capacity. Now, caffeine is or coffee is known as and it's the most widely consumed psychoactive stimulant. It's essentially it's a drug. But because you're not getting high like you would on it's it's kind of similar to like cocaine or methamphetamine, but it's, it's to a lesser extent. So it's legal. Caffeine also affects your dopamine by blocking its reabsorption in the brain, which is what makes you feel good. And this is what I think contributes to the addictive properties of caffeine, because yeah. dopamine is that pleasure and reward center. If you are increasing the action of dopamine and you're feeling good, right? That's when you start to become addicted. Start to chasing something. that. So yeah. That's when people will become addicted to coffee or caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, that and they go through withdrawals for the, you know, we just mentioned that. Yeah. Now, with all that being said, I don't see, and this is why I kind of think we want to touch up on coffee and caffeine. One of the most common questions that I get is, do I, am I going to have to, like when a new client comes on, am I going to have to cut down or, or eliminate coffee? Right. And my answer is usually no. No. Right. The only time that I tell people to cut down coffee is when you're do- doing nothing but drinking coffee and you're not drinking to any water. Going. Well, no, you're or eating, but you're not you're not hydrating. Right. So, well, yes, I agree. That's really the only time. But I don't see any downside. And I'm going to get a little bit more into detail about that. First, I want to talk about uh, pre-workout. So we've talked about caffeine, and that's also in our list of uh, right. the top five uh, performance enhancing supplements based on research. Yeah. Uh, caffeine increases your power, out, power output. It decreases fatigue. And there's an over, overall benefit shown in the research to your anaerobic cardiovascular exercise. Now, you, if you're getting mm-hmm. your... Now, that means your uh, your weightlifting, your sprinting, your high-intensity interval training, all of those things are going to be affected by consuming caffeine. And it's going to be, in that case, an ergogenic aid, which is something that right. aids in your workout performance. So right. there's a benefit there. Now, I want to talk about metabolism and fat loss because coffee is shown to boost your metabolic rate, not by a ton, but it does help. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to burn more calories and you can eat like shit and drink coffee all day and you're going to lose weight because well, that's why you still have to put in you still have to put in the work. Right. It may have a mild effect on fat loss. There is some research that may correlate it to that, which makes sense. You're increasing thermogenesis. You're increasing your metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. Now, cardiovascular risk. This is what I want to get into. Coffee may cause mild increases in blood pressure like we've talked about because it increases adrenaline, which is a central nervous system stimulator. If you're stimulating your central nervous system, then you're going to have an effect there. And Nicole's pointing to herself because she's like, I can't have coffee because this is what happens happens to me and it's too much and it's too overwhelming. But what I will say is you're talking about like literally a slight movement in your blood pressure, which isn't going to be, be an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, right? Like if you're talking, correct. Uh, if you're talking like you are uh, 120 over 80 or 110 over, let's say 110 over 70, right? Mm-hmm. I like that better than 
120 over 80 for some reason. I just think that's more optimal. But Mm -hmm. if you're 110 over 70 and you move up from like 110 to 112, that's not going to be a significant difference, right? So that's not significant enough and it will diminish over time as you get further and further away from that cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And actually, coffee drinkers do not have an increase for heart disease and they actually are uh, shown to have a lower increase for uh, a lower risk for stroke. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I don't think caffeine is bad. Trust me. I love it. I just have experienced some of the effects in terms of my sleep. Like talk about the increase up. I think for me, it's more the come down and I can't come down and then I end up staying up even if I have it in the morning. I've just, and that's just trial and error on my part. If I don't have it, life is good. And don't get me wrong. Every now and then, if I'm okay with staying up, mm, if I have if I have coffee, we'll have it. If I have coffee, life is great. I try not to though. There are some other uh, aspects of uh, caffeine that we look at in terms of some observational studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not like double blind placebo controlled trials, uh, but you know, decreasing the risk of type two diabetes, increasing insulin sensitivity, certain types of cancers. I didn't really dive too much into that. Uh, may protect you against Alzheimer's and dementia. Again, observational studies when you show like percentage of the population that drinks coffee. Right. To me, to me, it's a little bit of a stretch because I think the number is about 86% of Americans drink coffee. Well, America or, runs on pro- so. Yeah, yeah. America That's runs on That's the slogan. Down. So, I <laughs> mean, if you're looking at 86%, like I, is there... The rest are the rest of the people, the ones that are suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. Like, I don't really know how that. No, works. I don't think so. I, I, you know, listen, caffeine's fantastic. It's in every pre-workout. Almost all of our clients utilize it. I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on the health of the person and how you utilize it and when you use it. And we can have two different scenarios. You have someone like you that just enjoys a cup of coffee in the morning and loves it. And, you know, the rest of your day is beautifully... Um, built on a healthy meal plan. And then you have someone that drinks six cups of coffee a day and comes in with the jitters and can't really eat because they're not hungry. Well, it's about life, like, li- it's lifestyle, lifestyle. balance, right? Yeah. So it's not that caffeine is bad or good, like everything else that we talk about in terms of nutrition. It's who you are, how you use it, and you know what it does to your body and how it affects you. That's really the baseline. But I mean, we've seen or I've seen, we've seen pre-workouts that have like 250 milligrams of caffeine versus just a basic cup of coffee or someone that drinks just a shot of espresso before they work out or someone that, you know, everybody does it differently. Some of the big guys at the gym that lift, like, (laughs) I swear they come in with like the, the venti jumbo black coffees and like chug that before they go lift. Like everybody does. You know what I never understood? And I feel like I judge these people and (laughs) People who drink coffee while they're working out. Yeah, I never understood that either, but I see it at the gym all the time. And I'm, it's like a hot beverage and you're sweating. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, some of them do iced coffee. I think yeah, I don't know. Just drink water. I, I just didn't. I never understood it from a performance standpoint. Like if you're going to utilize it, at least utilize it right. Have it before we you know. Give it 20 minutes and then enjoy life. The last thing I'll say about coffee is. It's epic. There's about a thousand antioxidants in it. So (laughs) I think coffee. Wait, do you have preference to coffee? Like, are you a coffee snob? A thousand percent. I'm a coffee snob. What's your favorite type of coffee? 
Like, what do you drink? I drink partner's coffee. Mm-hmm. That's based out of Brooklyn. Of course. And they, they brew, <laughs> they brew fresh beans. Mm-hmm. Um, right there and like package it and or they roast fresh beans yeah. and they package it and there i i'm really big into tasting notes and i i understand yeah. now which so i grind my own beans mm-hmm. um i stopped using k cups i initially actually i got into this coffee thing so now we're going to get into the whole story we'll get into it so i got into this coffee thing because i wanted to stop using k cups because of the waste yeah and I just have this thing in my head with turtles, even though I know that turtles aren't I know the poor turtles. But turtles aren't right. So I read an article actually that, you know, people are like talking about turtles and turtles actually aren't the most affected by like the plastic and the waste. Mm-hmm. There's other uh, sea creatures and, and animals in the ocean that are more so affected. But I don't know, it's like but this whole thing started with turtles. And I'm like, I just keep oh man, <laughs> turtles are so cute. They're going to eat the K-cups and they're going to die. So yeah. I stopped doing that. And then I got the my K-cup that's refillable. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, now I need to get my own beans and start grinding it. And then I started learning about, you know, me, I go get into the, the yeah, whole you go thing. deep. Like, I started getting into different types of beans, different types of roasts different tasting notes right so i don't really like the fruity tasting notes there are certain ones that i like like Mm -hmm. apple or pomegranate that i have in some of the blends that i have but i i do like like chocolate or very creamy tasting notes are really good and like we're talking like not a flavored coffee i don't like the like a french vanilla coffee yeah, that's flavored and has like that kind of chemical aftertaste. Like, yeah, I, don't, I just want a hint of those yeah. flavors in my coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get into light roast, medium roast, dark roast, and then you get into how are you brewing it? Right. Like, right. are you doing a drip? Are you doing uh, cold brew? How are you making the cold brew? Is it cold brew over 24 hours or is it dripping cold brew? Uh, are you yeah. doing uh, like a pour over? Are you doing a French press Are like there's so many There's different ways. So many it, ways. Right? So I started getting in, and I'm still getting further and further into it. And I'm I, like every time I go visit somewhere, yeah. I try to find now their local coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find is my favorite coffees, with the exception of Partners Coffee in, in Brooklyn. I don't know of any other coffee companies in New York that I'm like huge on. I know there are a couple other ones I haven't really you know, some other people that I know love them. I'm kind of like, eh, whatever. Uh, but my favorite coffees have come out of like the Midwest, like Colorado, Utah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. They just know those are coffee people. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I'm huge into coffee now. I love it. So, you know, if anybody wants to send me a bag of coffee or a recommendation, yeah. <laughs> a recommendation. A recommendation for coffee, just shoot me a DM and be like, hey, Daron, you got to try this. All right. So let's move on from my favorite topic, coffee. Let's talk about vitamins, multivitamins. First and foremost, I'm just going to say I do think people should take a multivitamin just to cover all bases. I agree. Just to cover nutrient gaps, because day to day, if you did like a nutrient log, you will find that you are not consuming every single nutrient every single day. It's impossible. Right. So just to kind of fill those gaps, I think it's important. I think part of the reason why it's important to fill some of those gaps is we look at, you know, we look at like daily values, mm-hmm. percent daily values. When you look at the back of your multivitamin, you'll see the number of IUs or milligrams or micrograms or whatever dosage that 
specific vitamin or nutrient uses. And you'll see 100% of your daily value and you'll see 5,000% of your daily value, right? You'll see all these different percentages. Now, the issue with daily value is that is what is considered enough for you to not be deficient, right? So are you going to, over a period of time, see symptoms of deficiency at like which number, right? So there's not enough research to point to what's optimal. So it's kind of difficult for me to say like, hey, you should be taking this much. I can use certain nutrients and vitamins and say like, hey, B12, if you get your B12 checked and it's not optimal every time you go, you may need to supplement with more. You need to take a supplement or I can say vitamin D, right? If you take 5,000 IUs a day and Mm -hmm. that's over 100% of the daily value, but your vitamin D levels aren't above where they should be and you're still considered deficient. Like there's also what is considered optimal for you based on how your body processes all of these things. So I do think that people should take a multivitamin. Now let's first talk about types of multivitamins. I don't recommend gummies. I don't think that I've ever seen a gummy multivitamin that has a full spectrum of your vitamins and minerals. It's Mm -hmm. usually uh, just it's a gummy. I mean, it's so not like sugar. It's like drinking vitamin water. Like it's you're not getting your vitamins from the, the actual water. You're it's not, yeah. it's not enough. It's not adequate. Right. So I also, um, there's a difference between doing one a day or multiple doses daily, because a lot of your water soluble vitamins and Nicole, you talked about this, uh, in, in getting into this episode, uh, like vitamin C for, for example, is shown to, be better taken multiple times throughout the day versus right. just taken once a day. So mm-hmm. if you are taking a uh, one a day multivitamin, maybe you'll want to take a vitamin C supplement on top of that, like later in the day, mm-hmm. or you want, you'll want to take something that is multiple pills. Um, like let's say a two a day multi and you take one in the morning and one in the evening, that yep. might be more optimal. There are some companies and brands out there that will do kind of an AM PM formula for their multivitamins. I mm-hmm. like them when those companies are smart about it and they are, uh, they're two different formulas. So like an AM multivitamin that will uh, be predominantly, predominantly vitamins yeah. and then a PM that will be predominantly minerals because you need yeah. more minerals in the evening. And also some of the vitamins and minerals compete for room in the same receptors. Mm-hmm. So you might not be absorbing everything. So That's where I stand with that. Now, in terms of your vitamin supplement and what you should be looking for, I think this is an important one. Things like like a Centrum or a one a day, they don't do it for me because of the type of vitamins that are in there, right? So we're talking uh, folate versus folic acid, uh, P5P, which is pyridoxal 5-phosphate versus pyridoxine, which is vitamin B6. Uh, and then we're talking B12, is it methylated or not, right? So mm-hmm. I like products that are methylated because some people do have a uh, genetic mutation that uh, stops the, causes them to not methylate certain vitamins. So even if you're taking in B12, you're not converting it into its active form, right. uh, which is uh, methylcobalamin. Now, a lot of companies will use cyanocobalamin. So I just want to kind of break this down by saying, and I spoke to somebody about this the other day. They were, they were wearing a t-shirt from a company 
And mm-hmm. I said, man, like, I love the owner of the company. I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to shit on them, but I'm going to say, I-, I said, I love the owner of the company. I don't love the company itself and their products. And the reason why I said that, I said, I, I always judge a company, a supplement company by the first thing I look at is their multivitamin. And if they're using cheaper ingredients, right, I'm going to push you in a different direction. So cheaper ingredients are cyanocobalamin or just regular vitamin B6 or the type of magnesium that's in the product, or is it, mm-hmm. uh, is it uh, magnesium oxide? Cause that's the cheapest form, right? So you know a lot about the product that you're taking from that standpoint. Why some of these things are important though, from an absorption standpoint is folate is actually less bioavailable than folic acid, which in the case of this specific vitamin, this B vitamin can actually lead you to absorb too much. So I would rather people get folate, which is the vitamin that they get from food than do the synthetic version, folic acid, right? It's less bioavailable, but that's the only instance where you want less bioavailable because you don't want to absorb too much because if you absorb too much folic acid, then that can mask a B12 deficiency if you have that specifically among elderly people. So doing something that has folate versus folic acid I would prefer it to have folate. Now, if it has something on the label that says 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, that is the active form. So that's the methylated version. What I like to generally say is I don't know what your genetic background is, and I don't know what mutations you do or don't have. But just to cover all bases to be safe, I would just rather you take the active form of that vitamin, which in this case is 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Now, pyridoxine versus uh, P5P, I don't really have a stance on this. I've seen some research that suggests that it's not, it's not any different. So I'm just going to kind of skip over that. But you do know how much money they're investing into the product uh, in terms of, you, you know, by which one they're using. And a lot of the good companies that I see, Thorne Research, Designs for Health, like those two yeah. types of companies. Um, what are some other companies that we... Uh... Thorne and Designs are my two favorite. Yeah. So uh, they generally uh, choose to do that. Now, methylcobalamin versus cyanocobalamin. So cyanocobalamin is going to be the cheapest form of vitamin B12. Again, the methylated version is going to be the uh, pre-converted active form. Uh, So that's going to be just a a more expensive form of uh, vitamin B12. And uh, then the type of magnesium, I l- I'm a huge advocate of doing magnesium glycinate or doing a magnesium malate. Uh, typically, a-, a lot of times you'll see like magnesium uh, glycinate on some of the better products. And then some of the products that are a little bit cheaper, you'll get magnesium oxide. And then, you know, you want to look at, is it a one a day? Because mm-hmm. how much calcium are you getting in that product? Because calcium is very dense and would probably be better suited to be fit into more pills. And then we get into mega dosed versus regular dosed vitamins. I know there are certain brands and certain stores that supplement companies or supplement stores that will sell mega dose multivitamins. We don't really have information to support that mega dosed is better. I think we need more research on this. But what I will say is that 100% of the daily value probably isn't enough just because that is used to prevent deficiency. And there's not really an optimal range, an optimal number. So, uh, I mean, the truth is with that is that we don't know what optimal looks like. And those are our five random topics, random facts, and some of the science behind them. And 
Nicole, we've got some fun stuff that random stuff that we just wanted to add to the other random stuff we just talked about. <laughs> More random stuff on top of random stuff. It's just a random podcast episode. I know. That's okay. We did some pretty heavy ones prior. So this one's a little yeah, more fine. lighthearted. But all right. This was funny to me that I was looking up. Uh, one of my clients asked me about donuts one day. And she was like, I always use the analogy uh, four ounces of chicken versus a donut. Which one has more nutrient density? Which one is better for you? And you know how easy it is to eat a dozen donuts that you could take down simply because there's not a lot of nutrients in a donut. But if I asked you to eat a dozen four ounces of four ounce chicken breast, you couldn't do it. Um, and she was like, how many people in the world do you think eat donuts every day? Come on, everybody eats donuts. So I had to look it up. And the answer is over 10 billion donuts are consumed in the US every day. 10 billion. You know, I think I'm just going to quit now. I just thought that was, I was like, I'm, wow, she's right. <laughs> I'm just going to get into the donut industry because that's a lot <laughs> well, of donuts. That's what I thought. I want a piece of that. Oh, it's like 10 billion donuts a day. Or no, excuse me, every year, not a day. Not a day. That would be a lot of donuts. That would be a lot of donuts every year. We'd just be donuts walking around. So I was texting her back and forth that the the answer to that, because she was asking. And I was like, I'm sure there's not that much chicken or vegetables eaten every year. But I didn't look that part up. And then the second one was another another question of a client, because she is a works for some a pharmaceutical company and she drives a lot. And so a lot of the time she eats in her car. And one of the things we were talking about is, could there be one meal of her day, like breakfast eaten at home before she leaves for the house or dinner at home when she gets home? And she had asked me, well, how many people, how many people do you think eat and drive at the same time? I'm like, well, I see it a lot in the morning, but I don't know. So I looked that up. So the answer to that is 20% of all American meals are eaten in the car, which is a lot. You know, I, I always question with these types of like survey things, right? Because this is a survey. I know. Right? I mean, listen, this is like, general. Who are they asking? Because they didn't ask me and I don't eat any meals in the car. No, me neither. But you'd be surprised. Think about it. She she literally leaves the house at like 5 a.m. She do, she does a protein shake in the car. She eats her lunch in the car when she's like going from hospital to hospital or she'll eat sometimes in the hospital. And then she on the way home will have packed if she packs a lunch, which I'm trying to get her to do. She'll eat that on the car ride home. It's just so horrible for your digestive system and your nervous system like to be constantly eating on the go, that's something I try very hard to get my clients to sit down and actually have a meal. And so the third one was about fast food because I definitely am very aggressive about fast food with my clients. Like that's probably the one thing that I'm, well, and alcohol, pretty no-no about. Like if you want a burger, make a good burger at home for yourself. But places like Burger King and McDonald's, like I just can't get behind it. So I have, <laughs> I have a client of mine that, she pretty much does fast food every day for um, lunch, every single day, McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, and, and you name it. She's been there. She's like a fast food connoisseur. And I'm like, oh, we've got to get that out of your food plan. Not that every now and then it's not OK, but every day for lunch is horrible. So she asked me, how many people do you think eat fast food? And if you saw any of the lines during the pandemic for the Burger King and the the McDonald's here in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. Oh my God, insane lines around the corner. So I looked that up. Americans spend 10% of their disposable income on fast food every year. I could see that. Yeah. Americans eat a decent amount of fast food. But listen, 10% of your, 10 of your total income. Like, Imagine disposable if that, income. Yeah. Of your disposable income. 
Oh, okay, so not that. your total income. So total disposable, disposable income. Yeah. But still, like, if you put that money, so one of the things that when I text that to her, we joked around about our her my training rates and our nutrition rates. And I was like, if you put that 10%, 10% back into Whole Foods and getting extra training session in or I don't know, good coffee <laughs> or something healthy, that money is just being literally pissed away to fast food restaurants who don't give a shit about your health and wellness and could care less if you eat good quality foods or not. They just throw the food out the window at you as you drive by. Like the whole analogy aggravates me. <laughs> so. All right. So uh, there we go. Those are just some fun ones. 10 billion donuts are consumed in the U.S. every year. 20% of American meals are eaten in the car. And 10% of your disposable income is spent on fast food every year. Think about that, Daron. Little We've got a lot of people to help. Food for thought. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a, another fabulous episode of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Random on top of random on top of random. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 